If you paid attention in school and learned anything about American history, the name Aaron Burr instantly calls to mind one event, his duel with Alexander Hamilton, in which Hamilton was slain. But there's so much more to Aaron Burr, one of the most fascinating characters in American history. At one time or another, he was considered a great man of integrity, a shoe-in for the presidency, a murderer, and even a traitor. Well, hello and welcome to the Marshall Public Library's Radio Hour. My name is Greg Grasso. I'm at the studio of KISU 91.1 FM, broadcasting from the campus of Idaho State University in Pocatello, Idaho. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a very intelligent man. He's an historian, a practicing constitutional lawyer, a lecturer, and a very accomplished author, David O. Stewart. David, it is a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, listen, after, um, after practicing law for more than 25 years, you turned to writing history. And uh, your first book, The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution, was a Washington Post bestseller and won the Washington Writing Award as well as Best Book in 07. And then two years later, you came up with another book, Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy. Uh, that was a Davis Kid bestseller and was called by all means the best account of this troubled episode by Professor David Donald of Harvard. Well, your latest work, American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, is an examination of Burr's remarkable Western expedition, an undertaking that took the nation's foundations at a time when those foundations were not too solid. So I'd like you to give our audience a little snapshot, a little sneak preview of this third knockout American uh, emperor novel. Well, Burr is uh, just an, an astonishing uh, historical figure in a lot of ways. He was a charismatic guy, but managed also to be mysterious. Uh, he always seemed to convey secrets. Um, he would be, uh, many charismatic people have powerful personalities that overwhelm a room. You think of a guy in our time like Bill Clinton. But mm -hmm. Burr was quiet. But he still had this magnetism that drew people. And he was an extraordinarily successful politician. And then he got blocked. He was Jefferson's vice president. And Jefferson didn't like him much and dropped him from the ticket when they were running for re-election in 1804. Burr tried to run for governor of New York and got beat because he had enemies back in New York. He had his duel. And then he was indicted for murder. And he was the sitting vice president of the United States under indictment for murder. Uh, when he finished his term, he couldn't go home because he would have been arrested for murder. So he went west. You know, it's an American tradition. When your life goes south, you go west. Right. And he tried to invent himself. And he hit upon this extraordinary scheme uh, which had lots of different features to it, but really was designed to retrieve his reputation to make him a great man again. Uh, and it involved invading Mexico. It involved creating a private army or maybe being in charge of becoming a, the head of the U.S. Army. Um, it was a multifaceted plan, and he attracted amazing people. Andrew Jackson was one of his close confederates. The general-in-chief of the army, James Wilkinson, was another close confederate. And it all fell apart on him at the last minute, and he was arrested for treason and tried for treason, uh, threatened with hanging. 
So it's an extraordinary uh, path. We've never had a vice president who had this kind of experience. Um, and it's just a great story. Well, um, if you would, um, give me a little bit more meat on this uh, insurrection in New Orleans. Uh, um, wasn't there a... Uh, like a conspiratory plan to, yeah, uh, to, to uh, uh, separate Mexico and Florida, right, and uh, liberate Mexico. But what, why did he want to pull Florida and Mexico out of the Union? I mean, well, was it, it, was it, the, was it Spain's uh, influence at that time? Or? Yeah, they were Spanish colonies at the time. Yeah, so sure. he was hoping to liberate them was the way he presented it. And, you know, the Louisiana Purchase was completed in 1803, just a couple of years before. Right. And most of the people in New Orleans and in uh, what we now call Louisiana were French-speaking people who didn't have much in common with the people from the United States and didn't much like being part of the United States. So they were very unhappy. Uh, the, United, the new U.S. government uh, did business in English. It, it voided all of their land titles. Um, so they had to reprove that they owned the land they were on. It didn't allow them to import slaves, which they were very unhappy about. So Burr went down there and sort of fished in troubled waters. There really was a secessionist movement down there that was very strong that also involved invading Mexico. And this notion of sort of building a whole new nation, really an empire, uh, along the uh, banks of the Gulf of Mexico, surrounding the Gulf of Mexico from Florida all the way around uh, to Central America would be a new nation. I, I get that. I get that. And, you know, I see some sort of correlation uh, with what the heck's going on in the world today. I mean, you know, we've got new parties e emerging in, in uh, our government uh, today. Um, I don't know what's going on, I, but I see something happening in American history that a lot of other uh, uh, nations, uh, cultures have gone through. I mean, look at Spain uh, wanting to spread uh, uh, the Christian word uh, throughout uh, Europe and, uh, you know, trying to trying to kick England out. Um, you know, Queen Elizabeth said, no way, you're not coming in. You know, the Spanish Armada, all that stuff. Do you see anything going on today? Do you see a correlation today? I don't know. I mean, I... You know, there, there are a couple of things that the Burr story causes me to think about for today. I mean, one is, frankly... I don't mean to argue with you too directly, but when people get all distraught about the way things are today, look at it in 1805, 1806. We had a former vice president running around trying to get the western part of the country to secede. Um, that was pretty dangerous. Uh, there was a real question whether the nation would survive. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote, well, if the West secedes, so be it. You know, that'll be okay. Mm -hmm. um, it was a whole, you know, the, the existence of the country was an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, something we don't face today. We have to recognize that, you know, we've got lots of big problems, but they're not the sort of survival issues that faced the country then. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, when Burr was arrested, and he was really among, really the most notorious man in the country, and put on trial for treason, Chief Justice John Marshall presided over the trial and very much insisted 
on enforcing the protections of the Constitution, the rule of law, that even though he was notorious, he was entitled to the fairest trial possible. And Burr took every advantage of what uh, Marshall was extending to him, and one is the quill. Um, and those are important principles we have to remember, that even notorious people, even people who are despised, it's a term that's often used in, by lawyers, are entitled to fair treatment by the court system. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the, an essential promise of this country that we have to redeem. John Marshall did it in 1807, and it's something we have to be willing to do every, in every generation. Right. Well, you, you still practice law, right? I do. Not a great deal, but some. Yeah, okay. Um, how, how, okay, so Burr, Burr got out of this. I mean, he, he cheated his own death. Um, uh, and, and he wasn't a lawyer, was he? I mean. Yes, he was. He oh, was he a was a lawyer. Oh, oh and, see, and there's a faux pas a, for me. <laughs> yeah, he was a very shrewd lawyer. Um, yeah. and, uh, Frankly, during the trial, which had all these all-stars, it was one of the first trials of the century that we have. In most centuries, we have 10 or 12 trials of the century, right. and this was the, our first. And it really was. You've got the vice president of the United States on trial for treason facing hanging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was the smartest lawyer in the room. Uh, he attacked the prosecution mercilessly. Mm. Uh, the, the prosecutor said if the trial had gone on another few weeks, he, he figured he was going to die. He was so exhausted. Mm. Um, he, he immediately subpoenaed President Jefferson's records. He created the first uh, uh, precedent uh, establishing that the president is not above the law, that if there's a court case and the president's records are relevant, the president mm. should produce those records, and maybe they'll be held confidential and maybe not. Mm. This whole executive privilege issue comes from Aaron Burr's case. Mm. Um, he also established that the treason uh crime was going to be construed narrowly, which is very important. The kings of England had always used treason as the tool of oppression for uh, holding down dissent. And, you know, our framers were very uh, afraid of the treason uh, provision, so that in the Constitution, they defined it very narrowly. Burr insisted on that at his trial. Marshall agreed with him completely. And as a result, we'd never had a problem where the treason... uh, Treason prosecutions were used in a repressive manner. So there were some great things that came out of that trial. It, it wasn't what Burr set out to do, but uh, those were contributions to the country that were very important. Is this event, and uh, of course probably others that you've researched, um, uh, is this what drove you to to start writing? I mean, uh, you were a constitutional lawyer. Uh, you argued cases. Um, you obviously believe in the Constitution. So why'd you start writing? You know, it was a very personal thing where, uh, and, you know, people, lawyers of a certain age, if they're listening, may recognize this. Uh, you just hit the point where you just as soon not try a case again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of work, um, and uh, it's, it's combat. Uh, it's not physical combat, but it's combat. Sure it is. And I was ready to do something else. Uh, and, you know, there are all these wonderful stories in our history that involve some law, and I'm very comfortable with those. Uh, and so I thought uh, I could uh, 
I could tell those stories uh, and that that would be uh, something I would enjoy doing. So that's, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to do it. Fantastic. Wow. Um, so as a constitutional lawyer, okay, um, give me uh, – Give me something contemporary, uh, you know, maybe not as recent uh, um, as the last couple of years, or, or, but give me, give me a case that uh, we can, uh, uh, that you tried or, or uh, presented uh, that uh, fits that uh, historical uh, dynamic. You got anything in mind? Well, I mean, I can trace right back to the Burr case. Uh, there you go. Coming out of... Uh, all the prisoners in Guantanamo, and as you know, we started with almost a thousand prisoners down there, many of whom are bad guys, and many of whom weren't. That's right. People who got swept up by the net. Right. And they brought what are called habeas corpus actions, challenging their detention there. You know, they were never, they, most of them have not had trials yet. Um, and the question whether they had a right to go to court, whether they had a right to an impartial judge determining whether they should be uh, held in, uh, in detention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A critical precedent was from Burr's case, because a couple of Burr's Confederates were arrested and shipped, they were arrested in New Orleans, shipped east to stand trial for treason. As soon as they got to Washington, they filed a habeas corpus petition, got mm-hmm. before Chief Justice Marshall, and he, he set them free. He said there was no evidence to detain them. And that they had a right to habeas corpus review, even though they were charged with treason. Hmm. And when I was working on doing uh, some briefs in support of the prisoners, not that they should be released, but simply that they had a right to a hearing, um, I was dealing with the Burr case. Hmm. So it's it's still relevant uh, to lots of things that are going on today. Yeah. Should Should everything be viewed from the standpoint of the Constitution. I mean, isn't it... I, I just think it's it would be tough for any judge, you know, uh, listening to a case, whether it's a domestic violence case or a treasonous case or whatever. Um, you know, I, I've, I've followed some some uh, dynamic on TV, some, some of these high-profile cases, and, you know, it was evident to, to me as a viewer, you know... <laughs> You know, funny business going on. Uh, yeah, the guy's guilty. Um, wh- why? Why is it so important that we've got to, to follow the Constitution? I mean, why? Why can't Why can't a judge just look in the eyes of somebody, you know, with his intuitiveness and say, "Hey, you know what? <laughs> you're a bad guy. You're 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 going down." I mean, what is it? Well, because it's so easy to, for those people to be prejudiced. Not intentionally, not consciously. But, you know, there are lots of studies that show that people who dress well do much better as defendants. People who are ugly do worse. (laughs) They're a lot more likely to be thought to be criminals. Mm -hmm. You've got to protect everybody's rights, and you've got to have rules. Otherwise, it's just a question of your gut feel, and frankly, your gut feel can be wrong. Look at all the convicted murderers. There's, you know, dozens of them who were on death row or had life sentences who have been found by DNA evidence to be innocent. Mm -hmm. Not just that they weren't found not guilty. They were found innocent. Mm -hmm. The system doesn't always work. It's a human system. So you've got to have rules to protect it. 
in the Burr case, this was a great example. The jury was convinced he was guilty, absolutely convinced. But there was no evidence before them that would prove it. So their verdict, instead of not guilty, and I love this, you, you never see this in a case, they returned a verdict of that Burr was not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. Hmm. And they're sort of holding their noses, clearly saying, we know this guy's guilty, but you didn't show us the evidence saying he was. And frankly, that's the right verdict. If, if, if the government can't prove you're guilty, you shouldn't go to court. Uh, you shouldn't be convicted. Yeah. Huh. Well, I asked that question because uh, I, I, I'm in a very public venue. I see thousands of people a, a month. I talk to them. I, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I, I study 1939 to 45, and I'm, and I'm just starting to open up my brain and get into early American history, which, which I did study for a little bit. Um, the uh, uh, you know the, there's a generation coming up in the world uh, that quite frankly is not taught these practices and theories in school today. Um, me being 56, uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, we were taught this. We were taught American history. It's not being taught anymore. You know what the hell's going to happen to to this generation if they don't understand how we got to where we are. Well, it, it's, a, it's a real issue that we teach our history well. Um, there are some wonderful history teachers out there, but, you know, with a lot of this No Child Left Behind legislation, the emphasis has gone on to what they call basic skills, and there's been some cutbacks in teaching history. Mm. And that's a shame. And, you know, when they do teach history, too often they teach to the test. Mm-hmm. You know, and it becomes memorizing, memorizing facts. And, you know, history becomes, I often like to say, just one darn thing after another. Mm-hmm. And what it is is it's stories. It's stories of real people facing real crises, and how do they deal with them? Mm-hmm. You know, in our history, a lot of people have died for our principles. Mm-hmm. What holds us together as a nation? Well, that, what could be a more powerful story? Why can't that get across to people? And you get it across to people... Not by teaching them, you know, that Roosevelt met Churchill and Stalin at Yalta in 1945, but by teaching them what the war was like, what the issues were in the war, what the consequences of fascism were in World War II. Correct. That's what you have to teach. You have to teach it at a human level. And there are wonderful people doing it, and we just need to do more of it. I empathize with the, uh, with the young kids um, because I challenge, I challenge a lot of people, young and old, um, uh, I'll see them coming by with, uh, well, with, with, you know, particular case, uh, summer of 1787. I see that come across my desk, you know, weekly. And uh, it's like, who are you? What, why are you reading this? You know, I, I, I drill these people all the time. And and it's interesting that, um, you know, a lot of folks in our age, you know, 40 to 60 or whatever, I'm, uh, you know, we, we, we hold those core values. We hold those teachings and that education that, uh, that we grew up with. Um, and uh, so, I, so it's interesting on, on why people are starting now. I mean, this is kind of a, a fluke thing. I mean, a lot of people are reading, reading uh, American history right now. I don't know what's going on. Um, but it's, well, it's I good think- to see. 
yeah, people are interested in what went before us. And, if you know, if we don't mm-hmm. teach our children, shame on us. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that, that we should expose everyone to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great opportunity to talk about values and to talk about uh, how human beings live together, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is, you know, uh, how do we build a society that's fair? These are important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I got another uh, question that just popped into my head here. Um, uh, you practice law for many, many, many years. Um, is is the practice of law sustainable? Is it is it something that that you know generations and generations from here on out are are are, are we studying, are we practicing the same kind of law that, that we, uh, let's say, practice in the 60s and 70s, you know? I mean, is it the same material? Uh, um, how, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, when I read briefs and legal arguments from 1807, yeah. from the lawyers in Burr's case, yeah. I understand exactly what they're arguing and why they're arguing it and what their sources are and how they get from A to B to C to D and what they're trying to do. So the, 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 the model of the law, the notion that we care about precedent, we care about what went before us and what decisions are we care about, that we have principles of fair notice. That, you know, the statute should tell you what is illegal and it should be changed on you afterwards and you discover you violated the law by mistake. Mm. Intent matters. Um, these are all things that are, you know, have been consistent. Some of the structure of the law does change. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the way you know lawyers spend their days. Do they use computers? Do they uh, present videotape mm-hmm. evidence in court? Do they, uh, you know, and and uh, how do they, you know, representing corporations is obviously. Uh, something that wasn't done much back in 1807. But the, the basic process of the law is, and, and the thinking about the law, the, the principles of the law, have not significantly changed. Right. Probably for, probably for a good cause. <laughs> David, um, off air we were, we were talking about you have, a, you have a three children, is that right? Or? It's true. Yes. And they're adults now, right? Yes. Okay. Um. Did you, when you were raising your kids, did you, were you able to separate parent from professional or did you kind of mix those two together to give, not only to give your children a good moral um, background, uh, you know, a sustainable uh, core value, but uh, did you roll in your profession as, as these kids were growing up? Um, I did with my children you know, I taught them everything I knew. Uh, I'm just wondering. I'm just curious. Well, I think they certainly understood what I was doing, and I was open and talked about that. Um, I I don't think, frankly, uh, it was an overpowering example, since none of them has gone to law school. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We didn't raise any lawyers, um, so my conscience is clear on that score. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just part of the overall human being and you know what you do matters and people ought to understand it and sure. you know everything that people do involves you know their own what anything you do eight hours a day you're putting your values into it your pride in your work your care
care for doing it well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that you want to communicate to your uh, children, that uh, you know, our time on Earth is precious and it should be used well. You know, earlier you mentioned um, you got to a point in your career where you didn't want to, let's say, compete anymore in that arena and you turned to writing. Um, what do you have? Uh, what do you have planned for yourself down the road, David? Are you going to continue this uh, this uh, uh, incredible wealth of knowledge you have? Are you going to be writing anything else? Yeah, I, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to combine uh, to, to move into writing and also continue to practice law some, um, and I'm hoping to keep that going as long as I can, as long as uh, my brain functions. Uh, we're going back to Simon and Schuster, my publisher, with a proposal for some uh, a couple of new projects, and uh, I'm hoping that we'll I'll just keep uh, keep doing it. This has just been a great fun for me, and uh, you know every day is a good day. It's hard to beat. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I give you a lot of uh, I give you a lot of respect, man. Um, there's one thing that interested me, and this will be the last question, uh, if you wouldn't mind, but. You talk about this cipher letter that James Wilkinson um, produced, okay? Uh, actually, there were a couple versions of this letter that um, that Burr wrote and uh, Wilkinson got his hands on. Is that right? Yeah, there were two copies of it that were sent to Wilkinson, and Wilkinson was the head of the Army who was Burr's Confederate. Right. Uh, and this was the letter to get him galvanized into action and— each copy of the letter went by a different route because travel through the frontier, these were really frontier lands, was kind of uh, hazardous and you couldn't be positive. Uh, it'd get there, so he sent two just to be sure. Well, I, I want to, uh, sorry for interrupting, but I want everybody, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you check out this or purchase this American Emperor um, book by David O. Stewart, I, I want everybody to turn to page 309 right away because uh, to me, uh, uh, this was uh, this was an amazing couple of pages here. I mean, uh, I really well, there, that letter was the principal evidence against Burr. So there's Correct. been a lot of people uh, worrying about uh, did Burr really write it? And, and that's what led to me it led to my earlier question. You know how he got out of this? With the, this letter was so uh, it was it was very threatening <laughs> to say the least. Well, it was, but you know, it was written in such a way that it and by a fairly clever lawyer yeah. that. It, didn't actually make a treasonous statement. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was a cautious man, even though he was trying audacious things. Well, um, I'm going to be very cautious now and uh, <laughs> wrap, wrap this interview up. I I, I want to thank uh, David Stewart. I want to thank KISU station manager Jerry Miller and staff manager Jamie Anderson for making this program possible. On behalf of the Marshall Public Library, this is Greg Grasso thanking author David Stewart today. David, thank you again so much, and um, I wish you only the best, sir. 